If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. This episode is brought to you by Reese's Peanut Butter Cups. In breaking news, leading scientists worldwide are conducting experiments to determine if Reese's Peanut Butter Cups are the perfect combination of peanut butter and chocolate. However, it appears the study was inconclusive, as the scientists couldn't help but eat all the Reese's. Because when you want something sweet, you can't do better than Reese's. Find Reese's now at a store near you. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to September's BBC History Magazine podcast. I'm David Musgrove, the editor of the magazine. Now this month, for our September issue, we're running a Chinese history special to time with the opening of the British Museum's first emperor exhibition, which is bringing some of the famous terracotta warriors to London. In the magazine, we have a feature by Dan Snow exploring the background to that ceramic army, along with a very brief canter through the long history of China, delivered by Professor Harry Gelber. And it's Professor Gelber who will join us shortly in this podcast. We also have a special digital magazine this month, which features video footage from the British Museum, with Dan Snow introducing the Terracotta Warriors exhibition. You can access our digital magazine via our website, which is www.bbchistorymagazine.com, and clicking on the BBC History Digital logo. I hope you enjoy that little extra. Moving away from China's past, the September issue of the magazine also has features on the Battle of Copenhagen, metal detecting, medieval justice, rugby in Vichy France, and Henry VIII. Now, if that's not enough, there's also two pieces on royal mistresses. One, Henrietta Howard, who was the courtesan of George II, and the second, on Catherine Swinford, who was the much-maligned mistress of John of Gaunt. A little later, the celebrated historical biographer Alison Weir will be talking to me about the finer points of Catherine Swinford's life, or Tracy Bourne will finish off this podcast as she tells us a little about Henrietta Howard and the life of King George II. You can buy BBC History magazine in all good news agents in the UK and in borders in the US. The magazine is monthly and goes on sale on the last Tuesday of the month for £3.60. 
You can, of course, save money in a trip to the shops by subscribing. UK podcast listeners can subscribe today for just £16.20 every six issues, and that's a saving of 25% on the cover price. You can order online at www.subscribeonline.co.uk forward slash history magazine, quoting pod07. Alternatively, you can call our hotline on 0844-844-0250. And now let's go over to Professor Gelber, who's going to guide us through some of the complexities of Chinese history. Professor Gelber, you start off your 20-point history of China in BBC History magazine with Confucius. How significant a figure is he in the development of China? Well, let me give you an analogy. You can't really talk about the history of Europe over the last 1,000, 1,500 or 2,000 years without making it clear that the entire social and legal and intellectual structure is ultimately based on one or other version of Christianity. Well, it's a bit like that. Confucius has really provided, I think the sort of trunk sociological and intellectual basis for Chinese life and certainly for the structure of Chinese society. Of course, there have been variants on this because the Chinese have also imported Buddhism and there are Chinese Christians in increasing numbers nowadays and so on. But still, Chinese society, if it's anything, intellectually and philosophically, it's really a Confucian society and has been for quite a long time. There's going to be much made of the place of the first emperor, Qin Chi Handi, given the Terracotta Warriors exhibition at the British Museum. How pivotal is, is that first emperor's place in Chinese history? And is his importance overstressed because of the magnificent archaeology that's been found in his tomb? No, I don't think so. I think the Chinese themselves regard him as really quite critical, because after many, many centuries of toing and froing and, and warfare between contending kingdoms and so on, Qin Shi Huangdi is really the man who centralized and fused China into something for the first time recognizable as anything resembling the China that we know today, or rather the China from which the China that we know today has really developed. So he's the great unifier and centralizer of first instance. So I think he's really hugely important. In a very rough and ready uh, sort of way, you could say that he's about as important to China, in fact, more important to China than William the Conqueror is to England. What exactly did he do then? Can you detail precisely what he did for China? Well, what happened when he came to the throne originally as a king, before he became emperor, he ruled as a king among contending kingdoms that occupied the area that then became China. But what he did was to bring it all together by, by his strong right arm and by his laws and to fuse it, if you like, into a single kingdom, and he was really the first one to call himself emperor. Now, leaping forward from the first emperor and going past the Song and the Tang dynasties, we we move up to Genghis Khan and the Mongols. We know a lot about them from the Western perspective, but how much of an impact did they have on China? Interestingly, very much less, in the sense that the Chinese absorbed the Mongols. The first real Mongol emperor of China, the founding emperor of what became called the Yuan dynasty of Mongols, was of course Kublai Khan, who was Genghis Khan's grandson, who discovered, to no great surprise, that you couldn't really rule China from horseback, so to speak, as the Mongols had had done before him. And he settled down and became a highly civilized, multifaceted Chinese emperor. It's not so much that the Mongols ruled China, though of course they did, but that China absorbed the Mongols in a very serious way. And that was one of the elements in Chinese history that convinced the Chinese that they had a superior civilization and that other people would simply 
fold into the Chinese culture that they have produced. Do they still have that sense of having a superior civilization? They won't say so, but of course they do. The uh, Chinese have, for a couple of thousand years, until really very recently, regarded themselves as the central civilization. In, in fact, the whole business about China as the civilization surrounded by barbarians embodies the notion that China is the center of civilization. And it's very hard to get rid of the historical memories of 2,000 years of that kind of thing. And I think you'll find that for most Chinese, there is a sort of uh, un unspoken assumption that somehow Chinese and China are really the great central civilizations of the earth. Now, modern Chinese, if you talk to an educated Chinese lawyer in Hong Kong, of course, he won't say that. He may not even believe it. But somehow the, the notion of China as the greatest and the most central to humanity is really deeply embodied in the Chinese polity even to this day. And I suppose, in a sense, people in the West would think of ourselves in, in that same sense. But, so when do we get the first stirrings of Western involvement in China? And how did the Chinese come to deal with this? Well, there are really two elements to this, I think. You begin really quite early in the, uh, what, 8th, 9th centuries and so on, to get the Europeans to send the odd friar over to China to find out what's going on and to try, for instance, to make an alliance with the Chinese against the Islamic push that was at that point starting to uh, threaten Europe, of course. None of that works out. And, of course, there are merchants who, who get to China, but, but the real links begin much later. They, they begin, oh, I guess, under the uh, Mongols, and then again in the 1500s when the first Portuguese traders land, and when, at very roughly the same time, the first Russians come to China's northern borders. We tend, I think, in Western Europe to forget about this extraordinary tale of Russian expansion from the Urals to the Pacific in a mere 80 years. So the Russians, and very crude and rough explorers they were, but it's a great, in the sense, a very strong and romantic story of these Russians first making an impact on China's northern borders. So you get the Russians in the north, and you get the Portuguese and the British and so on in the south, all roughly in the 1500s and the early 1600s, beginning to make an impact on China. But of course, in the first instance, only as traders and as, as people exploring China and not really making a serious impact on Chinese politics and Chinese affairs until very much later. But presumably the appearance of these first Westerners must have come as something of a shock. How did the Chinese look at this? Well, not really a shock at all, because the Chinese had for centuries been great traders. The uh, great city of Hangzhou in southern China, for instance, had been one of the great uh, trading metropolises, not only of China, but of the entire Asia-Pacific region, with a million or a couple of million citizens. And there were Arabs and Persians and Japanese and Koreans and all kinds of people who came there. So really, in the first instance, when the first Portuguese landed, they were really just another set of outside barbarians who came along to trade, and they had very little impact on the uh, central Chinese affairs at all. They just came along and were dealt with by the local governing, governing officials, 
as simply another set of, of, of foreign barbarians, which is why in the first instance they were called the red-haired barbarians. And now moving on into the modern era, we can't really understand China without understanding Chairman Mao. So where should we put him in Chinese history now? And how is he understood in China itself today? Well, there are two quite different facets to this. I think in historical terms, though I don't think Chinese look upon it, at least not officially nowadays, in quite this way, I think the most interesting way to see him is really after a period of Chinese collapse and Chinese weakness from, from uh, the latter part of the 19th century until the middle 19th, until the 1950s, that was a period of weakness and collapse and so on. And what you then get is really something that looks uncommonly like a new dynasty. And I think to regard Chairman Mao as the founding emperor of a new dynasty is really quite an interesting way of understanding him. But the other side of this, of course, is that Chairman Mao is also the founding personage of the entire Chinese communist state. And if you ask the Chinese Communist Party and its members, they cannot really get away from the fact that he is the legitimating originator of everything that the Chinese Communist Party, of course, the single dominant party in China nowadays, everything that it represents and is, which is why they can't really denounce him, even if they wanted to, which many of them do not. Okay. And then finally, Chinese resurgence as a, a global power in recent years means that we all need to know more about China and its past. And mm-hmm. obviously, as I've shown by stumbling over the name of the first emperor um, here in the West, we struggle with that aspect of Chinese society. How can we here in the West hope to get to grips with such a long and complicated story? Oh, my goodness. I'm not quite sure what you're implying. Uh, Let me begin by saying that I think it's dangerous to regard China at the moment as the great superpower. Now, it's quite true that China comprises somewhere between a quarter and a fifth of the human race at the moment, and that inevitably tends to make people think that it's a great power. It's, of course, very important in economic terms at the moment, but there's more to being a great power than just economic clout. And we ought to remember that the Chinese have the most enormous problem. They're desperately short of water, for example. And the Chinese population has doubled or tripled, perhaps, with Chairman Mao's encouragement, in something like half a century, and that creates the most enormous pressures which are visible in China today. So I think we need to accept, at least I would be inclined to accept, uh, what Chinese officials keep saying, which is that about 99% of the attention of China's rulers is taken up with these ginormous domestic problems. How we get to grips with it is a little more difficult to say. China has always been extremely good, at displaying itself theatrically to foreigners and to visitors and is doing the same thing again today and will, of course, even more so do the same thing next year when the Beijing Olympics will undoubtedly be a glorious and wonderful spectacle. But a glorious and wonderful spectacle is not the same thing as global power if that is what we're talking about. What is, however, true and what I think we do need to understand is that the relationship between China and the United States and indeed China, Japan and the United States may well be one of the critical relationships of the next 50 or 100 years. And it's really terribly important that all of us, including the Europeans, who do our bit in that relationship, try and get that right. Well, thanks, Harry. You can read more about China's history in the current issue of BBC History magazine where Harry's got a 20-point history of China. And, and of course, I could recommend his new book, The Dragon and the Foreign Devils, which sums up Chinese history for the last... Uh, how many thousand years is that coming, Harry? <laughs> well, I talk about the last 3,000, but really what it's about is how foreigners have dealt with China. The Dragon and the Foreign Devils by Harry G. Gelber is published by Bloomsbury. 
Let's leave the Orient now and return a little closer to home to see what Alison Weir discovered when she was researching her latest biography on the medieval mistress of John of Gaunt, Catherine Swinford, a lady whose reputation has shifted from witch and whore to romantic heroine. Alison, who was Catherine Swinford and what did she do? Catherine Swinford lived in the late 14th century and she was the mistress for 25 years of John of Gaunt, Duke of Lancaster, the fourth son of Edward III of England. And in 1396, he married her. And it, that caused even more of a scandal than her being his mistress because she was thought to be far below him in rank and, 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 and she was also thought to be incredibly immoral. She was also the mother by him of the Beauforts and through them the ancestress of the Tudors. And so how important a figure is she in British history then? As you say, she's ancestor of the Tudors. What does she do and, and how, how important is she? She's important, for, for obviously, for dynastic reasons, because every single British monarch since 1461 is descended from her. And also, she's important, I think, in, in the book, because she shows how her life shows how a woman in the 14th century, in an age that's perceived to be male-dominated, can actually flex her political muscles, um, reinvent herself, and be independent. And Catherine did this in, in two ways that, that quite strike me. She was widowed very young, at about 21. She lost her husband, Sir Hugh Swinford, in the wars in France. And uh, she thereafter sort of carved a niche for herself as the Lady of Kettlethorpe in Lincolnshire. She managed that estate brilliantly, husbanding it for her son, Sir Thomas Swinford. But not only that, and, she, she, and, and of course, John, she was John of Gaunt's mistress for, for, for quite a lot of that time, and he gave her generous grants, which she used to maintain the manor. But he also trusted her to act independently financially. And the other thing is that when she married him, she, identi- she was re- aware of her past and how, the effect it was having on public opinion. And she reinvented herself, not only by irreproachable behaviour as Duchess of Lancaster, but also by the use of symbolism to identify herself with her patron saint, St Catherine, who was associated with virtue and, and royalty and learning. Okay, so clearly an important figure then. But you say in your feature that she hasn't been much studied. Why is that? What, yeah. There was an academic study a couple of years ago, but it wasn't a proper biography, and it was looking at various different aspects of her life. But um, I felt that, that it, it didn't get to the hub of her life. I think far more detail was needed to be able to realise this character. And she's kind of, the kind of history books that have been in print up until about the last... 20, 30 years, would never ever have featured a woman like Catherine Swinford, who was relatively obscure. Um, she, was often, she would often be relegated to a sentence or two or a footnote. I think it's in the last um, 20 years that we've actually seen a, a reversal of this trend. Um, even 10 years ago, I could never have contemplated writing a biography of Catherine. And um, she, it was actually, when I tried to sell this book, I tried to sell it as a book on, on John of Gaunt. And my editors actually said, well, why don't you write about Catherine Swinford? And I said, well, that's a dream come true, because Catherine's known to most people through the pages of this highly popular uh, romantic novel, um, Catherine, by Anya Seaton. And that came out in 1954. It's never been out of print. And it got into the top 100 in the BBC's Big Read in 2003. And that attests to its enduring popularity. And since then, it's been published in three different editions. I mean, that's interesting, isn't it? I think it's fair to say that most people would come to the subject of Catherine Swinford via that novel by Anya Seaton. So how close to the reality of Catherine's story did Seaton come? Considering the time she wrote it, and the fact she spent four years researching it, I mean, she didn't write that many books. She was very concerned to, you know, to, to get things right. But she, this is a novel, and she took a certain dramatic license with it. But 
it was all credible within the uh, you know within the limits of what she was doing. Um, and if you look at the book, um, there's a lot that she made up. There's a lot that she would you know she wouldn't have known because research has been done since she wrote it. I think it, I think it stands up pretty well. I still think the characterisation of John of Gaunt is very good. Catherine is more of sort of in line with the social mores of the 50s. And I think there's quite a lot about Anya Seaton in the character of Catherine. Hmm, okay. And, and finally, Alison, so what's your take on Catherine Swinford? Was she a witch or a heroine? I wouldn't say she was either, actually, but I think there's more to admire in her than to deplore. And I think, I mean, that, yes, she was, she was a bit of a grabbing landowner. She wasn't quite the, you know, the romantic medieval heroine that the Victorians would have had us believe. Or, you know, but, um, but neither was she, you know, the, 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 the witch and the whore and, you know, the seductress, the temptress. Um, she was um, a woman who I think you had, it was a great survivor and who had with a, a, a wonderful tact and very good with people. And she bound together that, that, that what a family that could have been incredibly dysfunctional um, through, through her personal qualities. Alison Weir's Catherine Swinford is published at the start of September by Jonathan Cape. And finally, let's hear from Dr Tracy Borman, whose new biography of Henrietta Howard reveals the story of a curiously ignored rural mistress, while at the same time giving us a new insight into the character of King George II. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Why take one vacation with the family when you could take all of them? With Royal Caribbean, you don't just go to the beach. You visit a private island and race down the tallest water slide in North America. You don't just go for a road trip. You ATV and zip line through the jungle. You don't just go somewhere new. You rappel down waterfalls and discover ancient temples. Because this isn't just any vacation. This is all the vacations. Come seek the Royal Caribbean. Ships Registry, Bahamas. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hi, Tracy. So you've got your new book out on Henrietta Howard. Um, first of all, can you tell me who was she? Well, Henrietta Howard is best known as being the mistress of King George II. But actually, she was far more than that. She was friends of some of the leading lights of the Georgian literary world, including you know, Alexander Pope, Jonathan Swift, etc. She was also a talented intellectual in her own right. But I think above all else, her story is just so fascinating. She led this kind of roller coaster life rags to riches and back to rags again um and you know it's just a fascinating story to uncover 
And uh, you were telling me that, that the reason you studied her was that because she's she's a person who hasn't been studied very much by historians. So so what's the reason for that? Why has she been mostly ignored by historians till now? Well, I actually couldn't believe it because the more I found out about her story, the more convinced I was that there must be you know countless biographies out there because actually at times it felt more like a work of fiction because it was just so dramatic, her life. But I think actually the key to why she hasn't been studied much is Henrietta herself, because she was so enigmatic and so discreet um, that it's incredibly difficult to get a sense of what she was really like unless you do some, some real digging amongst her correspondence. But actually the character that emerges is so fascinating and, and kind of complex and contrasting that, that it's so worth it. I mean, one family member accused her of being as close as a stopped bottle you know she was at the time so discreet but she had to be she had this violent husband she was constantly having to put a brave face onto the world and then of course she had to be discreet when she was the mistress of the prince of wales later the king but as i say her correspondence actually is so fantastic that as soon as you start digging the rewards are there to be had was it quite a detective hunt to try and find that correspondence um, well, it's actually all fairly accessible, having said that. It's in the British Library, um, and they very kindly sort of bound it up and catalogued it very neatly. But that's the main um, lot of correspondence. But then you really have to do some digging in local archives. It took me to deepest Norfolk, um, where I spent a few weeks. And, and then, of course, um, digging out the correspondence of Henrietta's many friends and acquaintances was the really hard work. So while the core of it was all there, easily accessible, there's so much more than that. Okay, so she was most notable for being the mistress of George II. So what have you learnt about the relationship that she had with the king? Well, it was certainly an affair born more of convenience than of passion. And it was actually, a, it's extraordinary, it's the reverse of a typical affair because the king was actually passionately in love with his wife, Caroline, and saw his mistress as a bit of an onerous duty. I mean, even after many years of marriage, he still preferred Caroline's bed to any other. He would, you know, if he'd been away from court, he would whisk Caroline off to bed at the minute he got back. Um, and, you know, he, he was very regular in his habits in terms of visiting Caroline, just as he was with Henrietta. I mean, he, he spent three or four hours every evening with Henrietta. Um, but I think what, why he had a mistress at all is that it was kind of expected of a king and of a prince of Wales. Um, it enhanced their royal status, not to mention their male dignity. And George was certainly keen not to be lacking in that respect. So he chose a mistress that he thought wouldn't give him much trouble. Um, Henrietta was renowned for her discretion and being apparently very mild and passive. Um, and she also showed a remarkable patience for his incredibly tedious conversation. So she was an ideal mistress in that respect. But you were saying that, that George was always really more in love with, with his wife Caroline than, 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 than Henrietta. So, so what other insights into George's life did you, did you glean from studying Henrietta's memoirs and letters? Well, viewed through Henrietta's life, uh, eyes, her royal lover is actually stripped of his exalted royal status and exposed as rather a farcical figure, I think. Um, I mean, he was known as a brave warrior king um, and he fought bravely in battle and was the last to lead his troops into battle, admittedly from a long way behind the firing line. Um, but actually he emerges as being petulant and irascible and flying into a rage and kicking his wig around the room if he didn't get his way. Um, he was, he was also small and stocky with bulging eyes and a rather prominent nose, and, and he was renowned for speaking in a loud voice with a very strong German accent. And one of my favourite um, occasions is when 
Attempting to curry favour with his new English subjects, George proudly and rather inaccurately declared, I have not one drop of blood in my veins, that is not English. And I just think that is fantastic. It, it sums up so much about the man, and he, he really does emerge as, as quite an interesting character. Tracy, thank you. Thank you very much. Henrietta Howard, King's Mistress, Queen's Servant, by Tracy Borman, is published this month by Jonathan Cape. That's it. I hope you've enjoyed this BBC History magazine podcast. Do pick up a copy of the magazine if you want to find out more about any of the topics we've talked about, particularly as this month, from the 17th to the 23rd of September, it's Magazine Week, when all things magazine are celebrated. Check out www.magazineweek.net for more on that. And of course, do listen again next month for more on the latest happenings in the history world.